Well, please do. Sorry. Uh, please do take a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 14, where we're continuing in Mark's gospel this morning. A number of you have asked me about my forehead. So if your eyesight's good enough to see it, let me just, I'll give you two narratives. You can choose one of them's true, one of them's false. You make the choice. It, it's either um, the cosmetic surgery went well this week, thank you. <laughs> and just before you say it can only improve, um, the second is that I didn't see a bicycle lane curb in Dublin last Sunday night in the dark and tripped over it and hit the pavement. You choose which is the true one. Okay. We've got three very exciting weekends ahead of us, haven't we? With the Mark drama next weekend. Let me encourage you not to think twice about inviting people. It is a fantastic uh, experience and a wonderful way of presenting the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, as Simon often says, don't say other people's no's for them. Just invite them. It really is fantastic. So let me encourage you to go out and invite all the people that you would invite normally, say, to a Carols by Candlelight, or maybe hesitate to invite because it's a bit churchy. Uh, it, this is not churchy. This is theatre. Uh, it happens to be in the church building. Uh, so let me encourage you to use that to the full. Next Saturday, Sunday, repeat performance, 7.30 both evenings. Lasts about an hour and a half. It is brilliant. And do pray for the actors, and especially for... Uh, Henry, who's got to memorize all the words of Jesus uh, throughout Mark's gospel. And then, of course, the weekend following the baptism, again, a great opportunity to, as Simon's already said, so don't hesitate to invite people to that who maybe say no to the Mark drama. So, well, funnily enough, the following weekend. Uh, and then, of course, the weekend after that is Easter, which is the, the high point of the Christian calendar. Uh, so, again, a great opportunity to, um, I was hearing the retired Bishop of Oxford this morning saying that, you know, when he started in ministry 40 years ago, people on the street knew what Easter was about. Today, most people have no idea. Uh, so it's a kind of, wouldn't you be, like to know what Christians believe about Easter? You know, just start assuming no knowledge. So enough, let's read, uh, or let's get to Mark 14. Just before we read, let me say this. One thing is sure about the future. The Son of Man is coming with great power and glory. We saw that last week from Mark 13, verse 26. The Son of Man is coming in the clouds, and you'll see it with great power and glory. So we need to stay awake, ready for his arrival. That's where chapter 13 ends, isn't it, in verse 37. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Great verses at the beginning of a sermon, don't you think? <laughs> stay awake. But this, of course, is ready for Jesus' arrival. His coming will reveal for all the world to see what kind of life you and I have actually been living. And Mark 14 shows two kinds of life revealed in two cameos over two memorable meals. So we pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar 
among the people. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And the, but there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's a day's wage of denarii, so maybe 30 grand, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water, which incidentally would be a very unusual thing, so they'd spot him. A man carrying a jar of water, it's usually the women who did it, will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new 
in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes to see wonderful things in these words. For Jesus' sake, amen. Meals can be memorable. They can be wonderfully memorable, can't they? I mean, I don't know what the most memorable meal that you can remember, which was a wonderful meal, is. Maybe it was your wedding reception or somebody else's wedding reception. Some celebratory feast, and you've got great memories. Even as I speak, you can bring it to your, to your mind's eye. There it is. What a great meal that was. Some meal, meals are memorable for the wrong reasons, aren't they? Have you ever been to um, a dinner party and despite your best checking, you, you discover you, you have got the dress code wrong and everyone else is dressed differently? I remember Joe and I went to one, we weren't married long, and, and we thought informal meant like sort of jeans and jumpers, but no, informal meant a jacket and shirt, but no tie and dresses for the women. And of course, we felt completely, oh no, we've got this so wrong. And I remember uh, trying to make up for it between courses and being extremely helpful, bounding down to the next floor to the kitchen to help take out stuff and bring it back and not noticing the low ceiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and braining myself on the low ceiling and half concussed, I lay on the landing, completely in the way, thinking, oh, this is a disaster. I have not forgotten that meal. Well, Mark 14 has two memorable meals. There you see in verse 3, Jesus was reclining at table to eat. Verse 18, they were reclining at table and eating. We are reaching the climax of Mark's account. We know already that the religious establishment want to get rid of Jesus, and here it comes again in verse 1. They are now set on eliminating him, and the only thing that's holding them back is this problem that he's very popular, so they can't arrest him openly without risk of a riot. They need to know if there's somewhere they can arrest him secretly, preferably under cover of darkness. Judas is their man. But between the reminder of the plot to destroy Jesus and the ploy of Judas to betray him, we get a remarkable cameo, the first memorable meal, memorable because of a beautiful thing, verses 3 to 9, a beautiful thing. Verse 3, Jesus was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 30,000 pounds and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And what is that beautiful thing that she has done? Well, verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, we don't know if this woman knew that Jesus was about to die. Mark doesn't tell us. Dark clouds were gathering, and she probably knew that. We don't know the name of this woman. She's unnamed. 
She's obviously a woman of some means to be able to afford to spend nearly a year's income on a single act of devotion. But we don't know her motivation. I mean, we can guess that presumably she loved Jesus and hugely valued him and serving him. And here we are, 2,000 years later, <clears throat> doing exactly what Jesus said in verse 9 would happen. Look at verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're talking about her. And what was done, we're talking in memory of her. And what do we learn from this woman? Well, we know that within a couple of days, the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. To set people like us free from the guilt of our sins, if only we will repent and believe. If only we will turn from living for ourselves and put our trust in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that. We don't have Jesus physically here. It's not like we're going to meet him in the street or have him come visit in the next month or two or year or two even in our church building. No, we're not going to meet Jesus physically until the end of time. But we are able to show him our love. How? Well, Jesus talked, and the Bible talks later, as we know, of how Jesus sees his church as his body, part of him, as it were. So what you do for the least of your brothers and sisters as a Christian, Jesus said, you do to me. Do you remember earlier in chapter 9, that wonderful little phrase in 41 of verse 41 of chapter 9, Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Just a simple thing like going to get a glass of water for someone. If you do that because they're one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a beautiful thing, says Jesus. And you're doing it as if you're doing it to me. It's a great phrase in verse 8 back in Mark 14, where Jesus says, she has done what she could. And we may say, well, I don't have that opportunity to, to do what this woman did. People aren't going to be talking about me in hundreds of years' time. No, almost certainly not. But you can do what you can. Maybe you're a young person. You've got choices ahead of you about what you're going to study, about your career path. How are you going to make those choices? Is it going to be based on how much money you can earn with this job rather than that job? Is it going to be based on how impressed people will be when they, they hear that you're studying this subject rather than that, or following this career rather than another? Or is it going to be based on how best you can use your life to serve others, even if the pay is not amazing, even if people look down on the job that you're doing and even say to you, would you know that's a waste of your life and your talents? Maybe you're a young parent, or not so young parent. Are you willing to serve other parents by helping with childcare or meals? People in practical need, you know what it's like, the stresses and strains of having a child or bringing a child up, or the stresses and strains of older life. 
Are you a working person? How do you deal with your finances? Are you setting aside your giving and offerings to the Lord before you book your next holiday? And just see what's left over maybe that you could give? Or does God get the first fruits rather than just the leftovers of your money? As you make choices about your future career, are you considering how you can best serve God in the local church or in the community rather than how quickly you can get to the top of the ladder? Maybe turning down promotions so that you have time to serve his people. One of my heroes from Evolve from my 20s is a guy called Jack Wales. Jack Wales ran a boys' Bible class in Dulwich in South London. And I remember he asked me to speak at one of their annual, they used to call them sort of birthday celebrations. And um, I discovered that Jack, who was a highly intelligent man, was in insurance in the city. But from his 20s, he had never taken promotion, even though he was offered it many times and could well have risen to the top of the insurance world. Why not? Because he knew that the cost would be so great that he would have to compromise on his service for the Lord with this boys' Bible class, which when I went to it had over 100 boys. It was phenomenal work. He did what he could. Maybe you're an older person, and you're thinking, well, I can't do what I used to be able to do. I can't serve as I once did. Well, maybe not, but are you prioritizing prayer? You have time now, don't you, like you didn't have before. What you, how are you using it? Are you being an encourager of others? I know some of you are. I know one or two. I can think of one in particular, an um, older person in this church family who is just a fantastic encourager. Notes and communications and words spoken. It is a beautiful thing. Well, how is it with you? When we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we will want to do what we can to honor him and his body, his people. Others, even sadly professing Christians, may say we're wasting our time and money, but from God's perspective, our service of the Lord Jesus is a beautiful thing. That meal was memorable for that beauty. The second meal was memorable for a rather different reason. Verses 10 to 21, a sad betrayal. Secondly, a sad betrayal. Now, the th shocking thing about Judas, which Mark underlines, is that he was one of the 12. Do you see that in verse 10? Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12. Verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you, and he's just entered with the 12, one of you, the 12. Verse 20, it is one of the 12. I don't know if you know that um, famous meeting of the Apostle Paul with the Ephesian elders, which we read about in Acts 20. One of the things he warns them about is this. He says, this is a really sobering verse, I think, is, is Acts 20. Um, what's the verse? It's verse, uh, it's up on the screen, isn't it, somewhere? 30. Someone can read. Thank you. Acts 20, verse 30. Brilliant. Paul says to these elders, from among your own selves, from among your group, 
will arise people speaking twisted things. Isn't that a shocking statement? No, don't look outside the church for the problems that are going to attack the church. Look inside. This is where the problem is going to come from. Again, Paul writing to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.10 of Demas, who'd been a church leader, and he says this, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Deserted me. Why? Because he's in love, and he uses the agape world. Now, you might have been brought up to, be, to believe that the agape word was a special word about God's love or love for God. It, it's not. It's, it can't be, unless Paul has got it wrong here. It, it's just a word that means devotion, attachment, commitment to something or someone. And here he says of Demas, he was, he was one of us. He was, a, he was a leader, but look what's happened to him. It's so sad. He's fallen in love with this present world, with its tempting sounds and its dazzling sights. Now, for Judas, it was the attraction of a bit of financial security. We know from other scriptures that he loved money. He took a little cut of the purse which he looked after. Not agreed with Jesus, just secretly. He thought a, a chunk of money in his bank account would, would, would be a real help. So he's prepared to betray Jesus. But the challenge for us is that we can be right at the heart of church life and Christian activity, but have something wrong in our heart, a secret devotion to something else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. People wouldn't know it looking at us on a Sunday. I don't know, it's the, it might be financial security that we just can't let go of our need for financial security, but then we'll never have enough, will we? Or sensual pleasure. Or just popularity. Being known as the life and soul of the party, or whatever it might be. Or just an easy life, just comfort, that's all we're after. Now, it won't be the same as Judas, but it can still be a sad betrayal. So when our lives are finally summarized in a sentence, when the Lord Jesus returns in power and glory and everything comes out into the open, how will our lives be summarized in a sentence? Will it be a beautiful thing or a series of beautiful things? Or will it be a sad betrayal? Well, what's going to ensure that it's a beautiful thing and not a sad betrayal? Our third point, briefly, from this passage. It's going to be a right understanding of the cross of Christ, verses 22 to 25. A right understanding of the cross of Christ. Mark has reminded us throughout this section that this is Passover time. There it is in verse 1 two days before the Passover. Verse 12, on the first day of the unleavened bread feast, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Verse 14, where I may eat the Passover. Verse 16, they prepared the Passover. Now, that's, that's not verbal underlining. I don't know what is. Jesus is keen to eat a Passover meal with his disciples before he dies. He's He's got it all arranged. You can see that in, in verses 12 following. He's obviously gone to some trouble to set this up. Why? 
Well, because he wants to show his followers that he's instituting a whole new Passover. When Jesus took the cup there in verse 24, for example, and, and said, this is my blood of the covenant, what would have been their thinking? His 12 apostles, as they heard him say this, I think they'd have been thinking, what? You, no, I think you've got this wrong, Jesus. You've forgotten the wording. You've forgotten the liturgy here. It's not your blood. It's, it's the blood of the Passover lamb hundreds of years ago that is represented by this cup. That time when God made his ancient covenant with the people of Israel to rescue them and make him his own people. That's why we're here. That's what the Passover's about. Have you forgotten that, Jesus? Jesus is saying, well, of course I know that. But I'm changing this because there is a new covenant now, a new covenant in my blood, not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just removes the wrath from the firstborn in Egypt. And my blood is going to be poured out for many, verse 24. My blood of the covenant. And some later texts, I guess scribes couldn't resist putting in the word new. This is the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. For anyone who will repent and believe the gospel, which is what Mark says is Jesus' basic message back in chapter 1. And of course, this is pointing forward to what will be the most memorable, memorable meal of all time and eternity. There it is in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, it's not explicit, but is that not a hint about the wedding feast that's to come at the end of time, that's there in Isaiah, that's there in Revelation? So, for example, Revelation 19.9 talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to that meal. Now, the wedding season is about to begin. The pandemic is over, just about. And you may get a wedding invitation soon. Maybe you've already had one. It's a great privilege, isn't it? Well, nothing like the privilege of being invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That'll be the most memorable meal ever. So how do we make sure that our life is not a sad betrayal, but is a beautiful thing? And the answer is when we come to a right understanding of the cross of Christ, that Jesus poured out his lifeblood so that we might be forgiven all our sins, and welcome to that wedding feast. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know our hearts, you know our struggles. You know the dazzling sights and tempting sounds that we see and hear, which tempt us away from following the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly, 
please would you keep us from ending up like Judas with a life that is a sad betrayal, even though we might be one of the group right now. Instead, Father, please may our lives be characterized by beautiful things time and again as we do what we can in our circumstances, in our particular stage of life, with all the challenges and opportunities and restrictions and openings that you give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.